Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is another warm, sunny morning here in the capital is John Mowat. John is the Managing Director and Founder of Hurricane Media, an award-winning video marketing agency based in Bristol and London, offering video strategy production and activation services. Uh, John, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you so much for joining us on the show. Hello, thank you very, very much for having me. It's a real pleasure, John, and certainly is a lovely day for it as well. Um, I think a good place to start, just for the listeners who may not be familiar with you, is just to sort of give a little bit of extended background on your business, the kind of things that you do, just before we get into the bones of the uh, the current situation. Yeah, sure. I mean, who am I and why I'm on this thing is a very valid place to start, I think. So um, I've always been a a, a content maker. I started um, at the BBC. I made documentaries for BBC One and BBC Two and and sort of became into a leadership role at BBC in that I was a director of of TV programs, kind of a creative lead. Um, And I did some very cool things. I I definitely travelled around the world doing that. I did Country File for quite a long time um, with people like Ben Fogel and John Craven, and that was great. Um, and then I ended up sort of culminating that, um, going off to the Gulf War and doing um, a, a documentary about the Royal Marines um, for BBC Two um, during the Gulf War. So that was a pretty crazy time. But then, sort of since leaving the BBC, I've moved into uh, a managing, uh, set up a company called Hurricane, which is a affiliate marketing agency, as you said. Um, and now I sort of lead a team of, well, between 16 and 20 people, depending on you know w- what we're doing at the time, um, and we make. TV commercials who make videos, um, and my role really here is strategic direction of the company, but also um, working at strategic levels with marketing um, departments and sort of C suites of other brands to help them with their marketing to figure out where they're going to go. So it's been a very colourful life getting to where I am, um, and I'm very lucky to be surrounded by a really, really good team of creative people. And I think there's something quite unique around managing creative people, which is very different mm. from maybe some other areas. I mean, it certainly presents its own challenge, certainly around satisfaction, what people are looking for and what kind of company culture they want to be in. So there's been some really unique challenges, I would say. And I can imagine that managing and supporting that team in the context of the current situation has been quite difficult. Um, as we record this in um, July of 2021, we are on the 21st, just for the listeners, as we record this podcast. So all social restrictions, almost anyway, have been lifted now in England, but we are still within the thick of the COVID situation. And that's been the case for the best part of um, 15, 16 months now, give or take, going back to March of last year, of course. Um, sort of looking back over the pandemic as a whole, John, um, to what extent has it affected you, your team, and your business? Wow, that is a big question, isn't it? Um, you know, as we stand here, nominally coming out of the side of it, the other side of it, we're in a good place. You know, we have managed to keep all the team. We've managed to keep the integrity um, of the team. We've managed to keep winning business. Um, so, you know, we are stood here in quite a solid position. I think we're lucky in that video is a huge growth area. I think what we're discovering is we're working with marketing teams. We're working with companies that are very much on the back foot. So um, what we're discovering is that 
um, maybe strategic plans that were in place two years ago are not there at the moment. So things are quite reactive um, and obviously budgets have been cut. So the, the challenges are how do you make things with less money and quickly with less of a plan, but still make them work. So our business as a whole has survived, but we, we, we face a very different marketplace. Yes, yeah, certainly. The other thing that's challenged us massively, of course, is filming. You know, suddenly you can't go into offices, you can't go into homes. So the sheer logistical challenges that my um, team have faced have been ridiculous, so hard. I mean, we've also been trying to do foreign shoots in the middle of it. So we filmed out in Chad in the middle of a global pandemic. That's probably the most dangerous country on the planet to film and in the middle of a pandemic. So, you know, there's been massive costs and effort going in just to make stuff happen. But um, yeah, we're, we're, we're okay, I think. And just because sort of issues around mental health and well-being have been significantly amplified by the pandemic period, how has that sort of held up amongst sort of yourself and your team during this time? And how has it been trying to manage that and keep morale high? That's a really good question. I think mental health for me as an individual and for me as a business leader is something that now is much more at the forefront of the way people are talking and thinking. And um, you know, I think there has been a traditional, let's not talk about mental health, this is in society, the general whole, but, you know, that is now something which we're openly talking to the team about, asking questions, how are you, how are you feeling, um, and I think what we've really focused on is listening to what the team want, and um, I think it's really important that the government can say, look, it's open, it's fine, and that's that's great, if that's what you want to go with, but actually for the mental well-being of our own team, we're listening to what they what they feel comfortable with, Who's comfortable coming in? What can we logistically do to make people feel more safe and more, and more sort of calm? Do they need to come to the office and see people for their own well-being, or is it are they more comfortable sat at home with video calls? So, what it has done is pushed mental health and listening to people's opinions on these things higher up the agenda. From what I'm listening to other companies, is when you have a company imposing strict, we're back in. This is the way it is now. This is what we feel as a business. That, I think, can put an awful stress on the workforce, um, and especially in a creative industry where people are, I think, slightly thinking a different way about what they want out of that job. And you just got to be really super careful that you are, you know, you are listening and seem to be listening. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important for business leaders to sort of show that they're really sensitive to these sorts of things as well. And you've talked about sort of the fact that working from home and having that hybrid working pattern is very important because... Working in the office environment as we knew it pre-pandemic isn't going to suit everybody, even though I think we've taken the social side of working within a workplace um, for granted maybe before COVID hit. But also flexible sort of working from home rather uh, more often than not doesn't necessarily fit everybody either. So I think it's quite clear that when we move into the post-COVID world and the virus is no longer an immediate and present danger, flexible working patterns they're going to have some part to play in the status quo and how we do business in this country aren't they yeah i don't actually necessarily think there is going to be a post-covid world i think there is going to be a covid world i think it's mm. i think it and iterations of it are here to stay and i think the even if the actual virus isn't around the the world has been shaped in in a, in a different way so you know we are changing our office spaces. We are changing the, the rules around who works when and where. Um, but it's good because clients have also changed the way. I mean, I had to drag myself into central London the other day for a meeting, which uh, two years ago would definitely be done in person. I did it in person and I realized I'm not doing that again. I'm going to just do that remote because 
it's it's wasted effort often to to do that travel and suddenly that option to not do it is suddenly on the table. So I think it's here to stay and it's just about how we take the good bits of that working, which is saving travel time, you know, all those kind of things, but we, we don't keep some of the bad side of things. And I think for me, the really negative areas have been, especially in creative workshops, when you need to quickly bat ideas around, mm. you need to be able to see people's faces. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to pick the areas where we do need face-to-face, which is team meetings, you know, just to touch base with everyone, but those big creative sessions where you're ideating and you're coming up with strong visions for either brands or yourself. And we're keeping those and we're nurturing those. But we maybe just don't do so many remote travels to sort of unnecessary meetings. Exactly that. Um, it's about sort of finding that balance between sort of time efficiency and being able to sort of use that creativity, isn't it? And have that team together to bounce ideas off each other because it is so, so important within the creative sectors for sure. And you mentioned as well, um, not just about sort of time efficiency when it came to having some meetings online, but also it has sustainability benefits, doesn't it? Cutting out on commuting and using public transport. And when we talk about sort of building back better from the pandemic and building back greener, that's also going to be a crucial consideration, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a simple answer. It is anything we can do to reduce carbon emissions, you know, should be integrated. Um, I think it, it is really important that we that we build those things in. Um, I think, obviously, there is, there's implications across the board, isn't it? Sustainability is obviously a core function of, of what we're all going to be looking at at the moment and taking any sustainable benefits, sustainability benefits from the pandemic kind of implications of it is super important. Can we reduce travel? You know, all those kind of things. But I want to counter that with, there used to be this period in between meetings when you would get on the train or you'd get on the tube or, you know, you'd walk from one physical space to another and you would have like a bit of mental downtime to process the outcome of those meetings, mm. either to sort of vent in your own mind or just to sort of file the output. And I think one of the things that I've discovered is when you're jumping from six or seven voice calls or video calls a day, suddenly the amount of meetings have gone up and the amount of processing time has gone down. So I, I know that's a move away from sustainability, but for me, those gaps in between calls is something we're trying to protect and something I'm trying to protect because I think it's really important that you give people time to process the outcomes, write them up, communicate them to others. And I think that's what's missing when you bounce from one meeting to another. Mm. I think you raise an incredibly important point there. And that is one key sort of takeaway from the uh, the pandemic, um, along with many, many lessons that we've sort of taken by and large as sort of a country and as an industry and as a society. Um, do you think that ultimately because of, the lessons that we have learned from the crisis, even though it's been something of an ordeal, something of a real tragic and challenging time, are we emerging from this ultimately stronger than we did before because of those lessons that we've learned and maybe those human connections that we've actually enhanced between each other, even though we've been working from afar at times? It's a very good question. Will the world be better because of the lessons that we have learned? And my cynical head is, we're very good at forgetting lessons, mm. you know, going back to the status quo, going back to the easy way. So it's one thing to learn the lessons. It's another thing to, to implement those and maintain them. So I think it's about us as leaders looking at the good bits that we want to take and making sure that they do get implemented into systems, into cultures, because I think there is a, a natural gravity back to 
how things were because we were doing it this certain way because it was easy and it was established. Um, so it's, it's about us as leaders taking the good bits and, and maintaining those. Um, I think there's definitely things like traveling to events, traveling to foreign shows, you know, trade shows, that, that kind of market I don't think is ever going to be the same again. Um, but there's, and I think that will be ingrained because there's a, an economic benefit of not sending your team to, you know, Brazil for a conference or whatever. But those kind of cultures about listening to people's needs, flexibility, allowing sort of people to sort of self-regulate their time a bit more, I think it's easy for those to be forgotten, however good they are, because they, they just get pushed to one side. So we just have to keep focusing on implementing those into the daily, day-to-day running of the business. Yeah, certainly so. And um, as we sort of look toward the next few months, just before we do wrap up on the programme today, because I'm conscious that we are starting to uh, run short of time, John, um, it is a period of uncertainty, isn't it, that we're entering into. We don't know what's going to happen with social restrictions. We don't know what direction the pandemic is going to go in. But in an ideal world, what are some of Hurricane's priorities going to be over the next sort of 12 months? And where do you see yourselves by this time in 2022? Okay. Well, on well, the first point on that, I think my my priority as a leader is to provide clear direction in what I would consider to be a bit of a vacuum. So, you know, we are getting mixed messages from the government, from scientists, or, you know, from whatever those kind of community attributes. And I think for us, it's kind of like picking the line that we think and communicating that clearly to the business. So, you know, we have decided we're not coming into the office. Um, we're going to work from home remotely unless we have specific needs to come in, creative sessions, whatever. So we have constructed our own, you know, our own sort of framework, which we people can refer to and go, right, this is the way to do it. So that's my immediate sort of thing. My priority for the next 12, years, 12 months is, I mean, to be honest, in the middle of lockdown, it was just to still be here. Mm. But now that we can look forward, it's moved beyond from what, I mean, we're going to still exist to how do we make the business profitable in a completely changed marketplace where timescales have lowered and budgets have lowered. Um, so really restructuring the team so that we can have um, some parts of the business that deliver a, a higher profit than maybe we did do before, which can counteract some of the parts of the business which we still want to do, which are slightly less profitable, but creatively rewarding or good for profile and those kinds of things. So um, my next 12 months is, is quite a different plan from maybe I had a couple of years ago. You know, the thing for me, though, is video is a massively growing area. We're in a very growth market. Mm. What we do is very sought after. So it's maintaining the quality. We, I mean, we are one of the best agencies around, so it's about making sure that we stay in that position so that when the market bounces back in 6 to 12 months, we are still here at the front of it, and, you know, we're able to have the pipe to deal with that turn in work. So for me, it's an immediate kind of like, repositioning of the business, restructuring of the business to enable us to be ready for 12 months' time when I think it's all going to come back way harder than it has. You know, the business is going to grow back much harder than it has done in the last six months. And so I understand, John, that you also have an upcoming book coming out this uh, year as well. Is that right uh, to be working on? Yes, absolutely. Very much a total marketing geek. So um, I've released the first book, Video Marketing Strategy, about four years ago, which is in three or four languages now and you know very lucky to be able to put out a second edition and the interesting thing has just been to see how the world of video and the marketplace has completely changed so yeah it's exciting times it's going to be a very very interesting time isn't it and um, I do indeed wish you all the luck in the world John in sort of making that vision a reality and I think as the mist starts to clear a little bit and we understand more exactly what direction that we're going in 
I'd love to actually welcome you back onto the program just to catch up on how things are getting on at the business and just discuss what's changed in the time between our discussions because I've thoroughly enjoyed having you join us on the show today and it's been a real eye-opener as to sort of what's been going on in your line of work. Well, it's been a pleasure being here. Thank you very much for having me. And, you know, I'd love to talk to you in six or 12 months and, and uh, tell you where we've got to. And hopefully there'll be some nice tales of success to share at that point as well, John. And uh, just before we do depart, um, please do take care and stay safe with all that's still going on in the world as well, because we're not quite out of the woods with this yet, but fingers crossed that better days are ahead of us. Uh, indeed. And thank you. And thank you to all the listeners as well. You know, keep safe and um, look forward to bouncing back over the next six months. Mm, absolutely. To all of those tuning in to today's podcast, please do continue to look after yourselves and of course be considerate of others as well because it does make such a key difference in saving lives during this time. It was a pleasure speaking with John Mowat, Managing Director and Founder of Hurricane Media on today's podcast, and I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed the interview. Uh, coming up next on today's show, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be sharing his take on the events of the last 15 or 16 months of the pandemic, as well as his hopes for the weeks ahead as we move out of lockdown. That will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists 
is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? 
And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. 
in some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shut, cut, uh, shut down, 
Um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? 
I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, 
a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer, and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways... Uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sir Keir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did 
in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.